Chasing Quicksilver by Shannon Douglas. Copyright 2020. Chapter 8. The Monkey Mind and the Great Forgetting. In the late 1700s, a German musician by the name of Ernst Chladny was experimenting with sound and vibration. He discovered he was able to make fine sand dance on a smooth steel surface into intricate mandalas by sending sound frequencies through the steel plate using a violin bow. Chladny was able to add a dimension to the wave analysis, and his research into sound and vibrational frequencies became foundational to the work of Erwin Schrödinger, the man with the famous cat who used Chladny's work to investigate and understand vibrational frequencies at the molecular and atomic levels of chemistry. If you ever studied high school chemistry, you'd be familiar with electron shells and valences and the various stable and reactive chemical states. And so Chladny is more famous for his scientific achievements than his musical ones. He created an experiment where he was able to demonstrate that sound vibrates in stable, cohesive patterns at certain frequencies and that as sound frequencies increased, so did the complexity of the standing sound wave. At first, at low levels of vibration, the sand on the plate would dance itself into simple, single-line circles and shapes relative to the steel plate. And as the sound frequencies increased, so did the complexity of the mandalas of sand dancing on steel. The same physics is at work when we use our finger to make a wine glass sing as we run our fingers around the rim, and in singing water bowls where the right frequency will make water droplets leap and dance in the bowl. We hear lots of people use the word vibration to refer to progressive levels of consciousness in the New Age world, and this experiment demonstrates that this is an apt metaphor. It's worth looking up Chladni shapes, or cymatics as it's called, or watching one of the many videos of a Chladni plate experiment on YouTube to get a visual idea of how this works. As interesting as Chladni's work on stable frequencies and vibrational patterns was, however, reading between the lines gives an even more compelling perspective. In order for the sand to form a more complex pattern on the steel plate, the coherence pattern of the wave passing through the plate has to break down into chaos before it can reform into stable shapes at higher vibrations and frequencies. This means that moving from one level of vibration to the next involves a disintegration or a collapse of the old pattern before new patterns can emerge. As Chladni shapes progress in complexity, some core themes to the shapes emerge. The framework looks familiar. There's just more detail and more layers in the mandala. The idea that vibrational patterns or frequencies in the sound spectrum can form stable shapes leads to interesting contemplations of crystalline structures found in nature that reflect the shape of the limited types of molecular bonds that form in crystals, which we know commonly as the platonic forms or platonic shapes. It also seems to be connected to the recursive shapes we find in mathematical formulas that describe the unfolding of the golden spiral found in nautilus shells, in flowers and tree branches in nature, and the world of recursive fractals like the Mandelbrot set. When we look at what our scientific understanding of the evolution of humanity entailed, we learn from the archaeologists and anthropologists that mankind went through stages of technological and social development over tens of thousands of years, 
We can mostly agree when we're talking about anatomically modern humans who've been around for perhaps 200,000 years that human society went through several stages of social development. It seems that this evolution involved successively complex patterns of social coherence and stability beginning with the hunter-gatherer coherence and evolving into our complex modern global society. Most of our history was spent in tribal units of less than 150 people, and we've only figured out how to live in larger groups of more than 150 people in the last few thousand years. This maximum number of people within the original human community was limited by our cognitive capacity to manage individual relationships in our lives. It's called the Dunbar Threshold, following the work of Dr. Robin Dunbar, a British anthropologist who published his research results in the 1990s. The Dunbar Threshold is the upper population limit of societies who don't have formal laws or rules or commandments. Communities who existed in this early, stable pattern of social coherence celebrated their victories and handled their disciplines directly and on an individual basis within the tribal unit, without having to impose formal laws and a formal system of governance. These groups would have fluctuated in numbers. In some cases, as resources became scarce, small numbers of people would have hived off from larger groups that were becoming too large for their territory, and those smaller groups would have roamed in search of more fertile opportunities, more abundant animals, and more bountiful plants. We know from modern research by people like Jared Diamond, which he accounted in his book, The World Until Yesterday, that the leading causes of death in these societies was intertribal warfare, insect, spider, and snake bites, and sepsis caused by cuts. Diamond visited a remote, isolated, traditional community in Papua New Guinea as a younger man, long before he wrote his book. It was a community that still practiced an oral tradition, and when the community found out that he was 40 years old, believing that 40 was extremely old by their experience, the community assigned two young people to follow him around to prevent him from falling and dying. In an earlier chapter, I shared the idea of explorer genes or explorer modes, which Dr. Brett Weinstein put forward which postulates that evolution and genetic variance was at least partly the result of life's need to explore and expand its ecological niches. The currently accepted evolutionary theory says that evolution is the result of random genetic mutations tested against environmental conditions over a very long period of time. The theory is that some of these random variations would have given organisms adaptive advantage within their ecological niches, which would have afforded them reproductive advantage and then those as a consequence with poorly adapted mutations would die off and not reproduce. Weinstein defined this question of whether or not the genetic programming of life includes an explorer function or program as one of the most interesting and central questions in modern evolutionary biology. Human beings and primates like chimpanzees certainly explore expand and defend their territory. Whether this is part of our genetic functions may not be settled science, but when human and primate groups or canine and feline packs reach certain numbers, small groups or coalitions will break off from the main group and search for new food supplies and mating opportunities. I imagine this would be similar for salmon, who normally return to the same spawning stream they were born in to spawn again and die. 
If the environmental competition was too high, perhaps this forced or triggered a small number of individual salmon to take on the high-risk process of seeking out new territory. Many, of course, would not be successful in establishing themselves in new territories, but those who did succeed in diversifying the territory of the species contributed to greater fitness by defending themselves against any localized ecological or environmental event that affected the group that they hived off from. Perhaps this is part of the reason that human beings have been able to spread around the globe so successfully. We have an instinct to expand our territory and our resources. Weinstein described this as a biological process of discovering new niches and adopting to new frontiers. And human beings, because of our capacity to manipulate our environments, do this better than any other animal. When we think of a frontier, the simplest one is a geographical frontier or a natural resource frontier or boundary. Chimps compete and make war on other chimps to control territory, which is rich in fruit and food resources, for example. But human beings, through technology, discover and expand new types of frontiers. The typical territory which hunters and gatherers roamed was large, but human groups who begin to domesticate animals require less land. The amount of land we require becomes smaller again when we learn the solar cycles and, and when we can enter the farming frontier, or when we can understand the lunar cycles and exploit the ocean and fishing frontiers. These technologies combined with dibble sticks and fishing nets expanded the resource frontiers by allowing humans to extract more resources and to preserve their harvests than simply hunting and gathering. The next frontier Weinstein observes is a transfer frontier. This is when survival units of humans or other animals exploit the resources of another group. There are memories of this kind of culture all through human history, beginning almost at the beginning of our memories. Cain, the herder, killed his brother Abel, the farmer, which is probably a metaphor or a mnemonic technique for remembering the clashes between two competing means of production within a territory in the distant human past as told by the victims of the war. Herders fought and killed farmers. There are likely many environmental and social pressures that would have triggered human communities to split and to explore new territories. And most early schisms very simply had to do with the manageable size of a group, the Dunbar threshold. Hunter-gatherers lived with food insecurity and so unchecked population growth would have added pressure to the community in times of scarcity. As distasteful as we modern humans might find it, scarcity led to infanticide, patricide, and matricide when communities would either passively allow the old, the sick, and the weak to die, or even actively end the suffering of an elder who could no longer keep up, or who became a threat to the survival of the group. As food supplies became stable with the expansion of technological frontiers, and as populations grew, human communities reached another limit this cognitive ceiling called the Dunbar Threshold. It describes our capacity to manage individual relationships, and this cognitive limit seemed to be at about the number of 150. At this stage, groups begin to require more formal rules and laws in order to remain stable and to protect social cohesion. If we recall the capacity of organisms to group into what we'd call a collective consciousness, a group below the Dunbar threshold can instinctively act as a single superorganism like a beehive 
or an ant colony without any formal structures. It can collaborate to obtain food, protect itself against threats, and maintain reproductive stability. When the boy child at the seashore sounds the alarm, he triggers the linguistic network of the community. The Dunbar group aligns in their mirror neurons in response to the threat. It was the maximum number as best as we can determine for maintaining a stable psychic field. And if readers would indulge the metaphor, it formed a stable vibrational pattern like a stable mandala on a Chaladni plate. One of the problems with these tribal units in the context of human evolution and the development of society was that they identified fiercely with their own communities, like British football fans do when they're rioting over their teams, or like warring religious or ethnic groups do that we see around the world today. When these tribes, operating as single minds, encounter other tribes who have their own cultures and technologies, war was often the inevitable outcome. The cohesion of a group mind was a survival tool and its defense mechanisms to fight to protect the integrity of the group are natural evolutionary responses. We saw an example of this tribal cohesion mobilized in the story of the rumble between the fisher children and the farmer children in an earlier chapter. Memories are funny things, especially when we can step outside of the perspective of the fishers and the farmers, or in the biblical case, outside the perspective of the herders and the farmers, to see that tribal identification and the cohesion of the tribal mind and its associated defense mechanisms has been part of human culture since the beginning of the world. In order to transcend the issues related to warring communities below the Dunbar threshold and to expand the human frontier, human beings needed to formalize control structures in order to scale society beyond the Dunbar limit. We can look at history and see the combination of factors that allowed human beings to do this, some having to do with the transfer frontier and the exploitation of the resources uh, of one group by another, often using superior technologies like weapons, as Jared Diamond described in his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And some have to do with expanding psychic technology by psychic explorers. Each of these territorial expansions, geographic territory, technological territory, transfer territory, and psychic territory, contributed to the evolution of civilization. But the psychic frontier is perhaps the most powerful and the most human. It helped us to scale the coherence at increasing levels of complexity, like the Chaladni sand figures reform into mandalas of increasing detail and intricacy at higher and higher sound frequencies. We expanded the psychic frontier by imposing abstract structures upon the psyches of our groups. We implemented laws and social rules to maintain coherence. The role of the shaman, the outsider, the explorer mind expanded and became one of several classes within a larger society, the priestly class. The priests fulfilled roles within chieftainships of united tribes, along with the warrior class, a productive class, and an artisanal class. This began with the rules of social order like the ones that most of us recall if we grew up within a monotheistic framework as the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Law. We saw these kinds of sets of laws emerge all around the world in a historically relatively small time period. Hammurabi, an ancient king of Babylon, outlined almost 300 laws in his written code around 1700 BC. Kung Fu Tzu, we know as Confucius, 
was a legalist who prescribed lengthy rules of filial piety and social order around 700 BC. Ashoka, who presided over a united empire in India a century after Alexander the Great, erected stone pillars at the crossroads of the empire, which were based on Buddhist teaching that contained the laws of the land. These sets of laws were largely based on the primitive idea of taking an eye for an eye, but they allowed human society to deal with aberrant behavior of individuals who became a threat to group cohesion, to the stability of resources, and to the integrity of the psychic field of the group. The expansion of this psychic frontier by the explorers within society, in this case the heirs to shamanic traditions who became the priests of the new age, reinforced the primal drives of life within human society to defend against threats, to procure energy and food, and to ensure the reproductive capacity of the group. As our societies evolved and human groups became more specialized and increasingly concentrated in cities and city-states, the problem of tribal cohesion embedded within a larger society became significant. When racial, ethnic, and religious subgroups maintain cohesion within a larger society, which is stronger than the society at large, tension can build as these separate psychic fields align. This is the tribal problem of fishers and farmers, or herders and farmers within society at large. Each of these groups becomes a threat to the stability of society itself as they defend geographic, technological, resource, and psychic territories of their own. This was the problem that led to the collapse of the Roman Empire and the birth of Christianity. The necessity of more sophisticated laws and a philosophical structure to bind society at larger orders of magnitude became imperative to iterate orders of social cohesion beyond chieftainships, small city-states, and small groups of aligned tribes like the Twelve Tribes of Israel and the Celtic and Teutonic Tribes of Europe. We evolved the Golden Rule as a psychotechnology to achieve this. Versions of the idea of forgiveness inclusion and loving one's neighbor even from a different tribe appeared in India with the Buddha in 700 BC. In China around the same time, it became enshrined in the Christian canon in roughly 325 AD with the Council of Nicaea. This was the moment in history when Christianity and monotheism was proclaimed as the official religion of the Roman Empire by Emperor Constantine. Religion, incidentally, means to bind and it bound the empire within a single unifying psychic framework that has since expanded to global proportions. This binding was necessary to solve the serious issues of instability that had plagued the Roman Empire, internal strife and conflict between members of hundreds of distinct cults and tribes within the boundaries of the empire, as well as conflict with many external pagan tribes and their cultures that bordered the empire. This was the birth of the religious mind, a psychic field which, as a coherent collective consciousness, expands its territories, defends itself from threats, stabilizes food and energy supplies, and manages rules of reproduction. This religious mind was the dominant, coherent psychic structure on the planet for centuries, even up until almost the present time. Ironically, the methodology of advancing the Golden Rule framework and the rule of law to bind society was systematic assimilation of groups that threatened social cohesion through the expansion of religion and the exploitation of successive transfer frontiers.
The result was an ongoing genocide that has continued into the present age, the expansion of the Christian church. The power structures of society driven by a higher order drive for cohesion, which is rooted in the religious mind, simply helped us to scale tribal violence and expand our capacity to exploit transfer frontiers from tribes under the Dunbar number fighting against each other to farmers and herders murdering each other, to societies of competing city-states warring with each other, to countries and empires warring with each other. The same defense mechanisms as we saw with the child by the seashore detecting a threat to the village has simply scaled. When society perceives a threat, it mobilizes against that threat like our bodies mobilize against a virus. Indigenous people who are alive today were systematically taken from their parents and their communities as children all over the world by the dominant culture because their existence was both a threat to the cohesion of the dominant culture and a rewarding frontier to exploit. In Canada, some of those children were placed in the homes of adoptive white families in a government action known as the 60s Scoop. Many others were sent to be re-educated in state and church-run residential schools where many thousands died and countless more suffered trauma and abuse as the government tried to take the cultural and tribal memories away from the people of our First Nations. This destruction of culture happened systematically in countries like Australia, Canada, and the United States, and it continued to happen up until the 1980s and 90s in some regions of the Western world. There have been incredible advances in the world as a result of this scaling of society and of establishing the rule of law and the rational social structures we've been able to create since in spite of the painfulness of the methodologies society has used to create them. These advances have afforded us the stability and opportunity to evolve that we've been able to exploit up until now as a species. At one time, war along with spider and snake bites, comprise the leading cause of death for human beings in the world. Now, though, the rate of death by war is many times lower than when we've compared to earlier periods in history, and we've largely solved the problem of snakes and spiders. We seemingly exist in a stable phase, but the advancement of our global civilization came at a cost. Besides the hundreds of millions of lives lost to wars and the exploitation of transfer frontiers, we've lost the maps of consciousness and the understanding of the nature of our souls that we once had. When Cain killed his brother Abel, he paid a steep price and carried a curse with him forever. If we look back far enough into the history of the West, all of us were assimilated at one point. We became domesticated humans instead of pre-Dunbar warriors. At some point, our ancestors were either conscripted into the church, we were surrendered into it, or we lost a war against it and had it imposed on us. As we were bound under the framework of one religion and one God, we lost our deeper memories of who we are. Yahweh, as it were, exploited the psychic frontier and wiped the rich and abundant psychic frontier of humanity clean. This was the first wave of the great forgetting. In the last few centuries, human society has taken another step towards scaling social coherence as we've entered the new technological frontiers one after another. It came with the development of the rational mind. The religious mind that emerged with the framework of the monotheistic order bound society together at scale through the imposition and enforcement of moral structures based on divine authority. You do it or you don't do it because God said so or else. 
The rational mind asserted dominion over the material world and established itself with mathematics and science as the objective benchmarks of reality, remapping our psychic frontier at the same time. The development of rational tools, structures, and processes allowed for a new order of social coherence to emerge, namely the nation-state and the political ideologies of governance. Democracy, communism, and fascism all emerged at this stage of societal development as counterpoints to the corruptibility of papal rule and the divine right of kings. The rational mind simply says, prove it, and it places authority in objective reason over claims of moral authority and the fallacious appeals to the higher power that we get from the religious mind. These structures in many ways accelerated the loss of our psychic maps and our understanding of the subtle plane because the materialist view is that the only reality is the material, rational world. The mechanical world. God can't be proven, and neither can any other intangible. As we saw in an earlier chapter, René Descartes rejected the existence of his own dreams, thoughts, and fantasies in his philosophical reductions, and he closed the door to the exploration of the psyche. And while it took outsiders and explorers to break the hold of the church upon the minds of civilization and bring a science, democracy, and individual freedom, the rational mind still can't accept the intangibles of existence because they cannot prove them. The consequence of the rational mind giving humanity the ability to scale at, at a global level with the technological tools it has given us is that we've become disconnected from the environment, from ourselves, and from our souls. How then do we reclaim this understanding personally and then as a society if remembering is even an adaptive evolutionary strategy at all? How do we reclaim the psychic sovereignty that we've lost as individuals as our civilization was assimilated into the dominator culture as it exploited and continues to exploit the transfer frontier? Our common understanding of our inner landscape was once far more comprehensive than what we have now. What I mean by that is that we've forgotten that there are practices and processes that once gave the common person, if they did so choose to ask the questions about it, unrestricted access to the soul. We've lost, however, the understanding of fundamental processes and structures of the psyche. We've made them heretical and blasphemous as well as irrational and unscientific. At times in human history, we had a much better understanding about the territory of the psyche and about navigating the labyrinth than we do commonly today. But the world is changing, and we're remembering more and more about our natures. The shamanic mind, the outsider mind, dissolves boundaries of beliefs, ideas, and models of the world held in patterns of cohesion, at least insofar as to be able to tease them apart to assess their integrity and validity as it searches for new territory. The gringo mind sees the patterns of sand dancing on the steel plate and is aware that societies evolve through time. Access to this mind requires an acceptance that we need to use a distinct way of thinking and being. It also requires an acceptance that consciousness flows through human beings, clans, tribes, societies, and institutions in different patterns, just like the different patterns that flow through the engineering mind, the geologist mind, and the artist's mind. At each stable stage of development, like at each resonant frequency of the Chladni plate where the sand dances in standing patterns, we have a functional society, but to iterate civilization, we must go through a breakdown. 
At some point, the structures of meaning will descend into chaos so that higher orders of social cohesion can take form and emerge. We saw this expressed in the philosophy of Nietzsche when he made his proclamation that God was dead. He didn't make this statement as an attack on religion, but as an observation of a crisis of meaning as the old institutional orders of religion were breaking down, as social coherence was destabilizing, and as new ideas about how to manage society emerged and were tested. During the mid to late 1800s, the breakdown or decohesion of society manifested as social experiments in utopian visions, in the rise of cults, in the renewed interest in the supernatural and the occult, and in an interest in global religious traditions and storytelling. It appears in the world today that many of the psychic defense mechanisms which protected group cohesion in earlier warring ages have been awakened in our societies at scale. The black and white territorial, power-driven energy of us versus them is a hideous beast and fearsome monster in our path as a species. We've encountered this monster many times before. Forces that awaken this leviathan set in motion primitive energies in our society which are responsible for the death of countless millions in purges and genocides just in the last century. In recent decades, we saw these forces unleashed in Rwanda and in East Timor. They occurred in Bosnia, Turkey, Congo, Japan, China, Russia, and of course in Nazi-occupied Europe. This happens when one group within society is mobilized against another, and descends into lawless extermination of enemies. The shamanic mind was collateral damage in the process of human domestication. The loss of this archetype was part of the cost that we paid to create a stable civilization. And now we know from Brett Weinstein and his ideas about evolutionary explorer mode, the explorer function which seeks new frontiers and territories is often a high risk high-reward undertaking that has a low probability of success. This is the nature of being a shaman. Cohesive groups don't like free thinkers. They don't like voices or competing psychic fields that deviate from the single authority of the dominant social power structure, either the religious or the rational power structures. And they have historically, systematically eliminated or marginalized that iterative mind the explorer mind. The rituals, songs, and sacred medicines of the tribal shaman were outlawed, vilified, and erased from history. The suppression and the destruction of all the archetypes within the psychic field of tribal mankind resulted in the loss of the map to the labyrinth of consciousness. It also resulted in the loss of understanding of the natural ecstasy of our birthright connection to the larger field of consciousness itself. This was the cause of the great forgetting. 